Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars. Today's episode of the Campus Exchange features a conversation between AEI's Christine Rosen and our academic program team's spectacular intern from this past fall semester, Ella O'Brien. Ella is a junior at Baylor University, where she studies political science with a minor in military studies. She was a steady and enthusiastic member of our team, helping us pull off our fall summit for our collegiate network, as well as our first generation student forum, an inaugural event, mind you. And we are so grateful for Ella's time with us and excited to see what the rest of her academic career entails. In today's conversation, something that's especially fun for us to do for our interns' final weeks, uh, Ella and Christine sit down to talk about Christine's work on media bias, social media, democracy, and culture. Now, if those topics are of interest to you, particularly learning from Christine, uh, and you want to go deeper, you ought to consider applying for AEI's Summer Honors Program, where Christine Rosen is one of our instructors talking about these very topics, technology and democracy and the challenges that they pose to one another. The application for Summer Honors is open now, and this holiday season is a perfect time to work on your application. To learn more, including all of the other seminars, even beyond Christine's awesome seminar that are offered, you can go to aei.org slash shp. That's aei.org slash shp. And with that, Enjoy the conversation between Christine Rosen and Ella O'Brien. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Ella O'Brien, and I am a junior at Baylor University studying political science. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Dr. Christine Rosen. Dr. Rosen is a senior fellow here at AEI who specializes in society and culture as well as technology and culture. Dr. Rosen is concurrently a columnist for Commentary Magazine and a co-host of the Commentary Magazine podcast, a fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture, and a senior editor in an advisory position at the New Atlantis. Dr. Rosen has also been featured on several broadcasts, is often published in popular press, and is the author or co-author of several books. Dr. Rosen, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Reflecting on the early days of social media, it was initially promised that platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram would act as tools to unite society and flourish democracy. To kick off our conversation, and as an introduction for those listening, can you briefly describe how this may no longer be the case? Further, in your opinion, what are some general issues surrounding the influence of social media in our contemporary society? Well, it's a great question. Um, I will actually take us way back to the days of MySpace, which people (laughs) always sort of laugh when they hear the word. But in those early days of MySpace, Facebook, all of these early social media sites, I think there was genuinely a lot of enthusiasm and really a very idealized version of what this would do. This was going to be the town square brought to you online. Everyone can join. We'll all be friends. It'll be great. So some of us who were, I guess you could say, skeptical and or cynical were like, yes, but some people really like to mess up public spaces. And this is why we can't have nice things. So we were making these arguments very early on. But at the beginning, I think both the creators of a lot of these platforms, with the exception of Mark Zuckerberg and some others, really wanted to 
to open up this online space to everyone. So there, there were good intentions, let's, let's say that. But in figuring out very quickly that this was going to be an ad-based sort of free product, that very rapidly changed the dynamic of how it was designed. It was designed to get people to stay on the platform. And so what keeps people coming back to things? Intermittent rewards, for example. Uh, watch people play you know, a machine gambling slot machine. You'll see they, they, they keep assuming they'll get more. But the main thing that these platforms very quickly uh, valorized and monetized were anger and fear and anxiety. Those are very powerful emotions. And the emotional response we had on a lot of these platforms to seeing things that made us have these, these rushes of serotonin or whatever you want to call them made a lot of money for the companies that created them. So in terms of what this did to democracy, I think it very rapidly changed the conversation to one that instead of being deliberative, instead of being thoughtful, rewarded being reactionary and being the loudest voice in the room. So I think, again, that's not true of all platforms all the time, but in general, that's what these platforms rewarded because of the way they were designed and because of the scale and number of people who were participating on them. So as a follow-up to that question, I want to touch on how are these platforms being used by political parties and individual politicians? <laughs> so let me go to the individual politicians first. This is a real hobby horse of mine. Um, they are being used in a way that I think undermines the role and responsibility of elected officials. So lots of elected officials use these as they would use uh, you know, their congressional websites. Like, here's a way to get in touch with me. I'm po My staff posts things that I'm doing. That's all well and good. This is fine. If you're using it as a kind of more sophisticated bulletin board to reach your constituents and to reach the public, I have no problem with that. What I do have a problem with are people, and this is true on the right and the left. This is a this is a bipartisan um, problem. People who use the platform to gain followers with very little thought to who their constituents are, and by that I'm thinking about you know the Matt Gateses of the world, the Alexandria Ocasio Cortezes of the world, people who just want to be famous online. So. AOC was heralded as being someone who was going to really bring democracy to Gen Z because she was going to walk us through Congress on her first day. And isn't this amazing? Well, she's just become this Instagram loving, you know, uh, underminer of democracy, in my opinion, not because of her political leanings. I don't care if she's on the left or the right, but because she is talking to an audience that has nothing to do with her responsibility as a congresswoman. Her constituents are not the people she's speaking to. She wants followers, not constituents. And so I think that's quite dangerous because if enough of our elected officials are preaching to that choir, they are not dealing with the problems of Congress, which are about compromise and, you know, sitting down in your office and hammering out legislation. She hasn't passed anything useful. She talks a big talk. She goes on Instagram talking about Green New Deal. And this is, again, this is true of the right to picking fights with other Congress members, all these things. It's performative. It's uh, often very vitriolic. And it doesn't really invite the public to participate in what Congress should be doing or to push back on their elected officials in a way that's healthy, again, it encourages anger. It has, I think, in many cases, encouraged violent behavior in the real world. These are all things that in a very heterogeneous society, we need to be cautious about embracing um, as tools. So in terms of political parties, actually, I would say social media platforms have undermined the power and uh, reach of political parties. Political parties really aren't very powerful anymore, uh, in part because people can go directly to the public on social media and make their make their cases. But we need those mediating institutions, particularly in politics. Otherwise, you get demagoguery. Mm -hmm. So I want to draw back to a lecture that you gave at the Chautauqua Institution in 2021 titled Trust, Freedom, and the Cancel Culture. 
Here you discuss how an abundance of younger generation Americans are facing a great deal of confusion about the meaning of tolerance. Quote, tolerance encourages accommodation. It doesn't require the elimination of certain ideas from debate. Can you elaborate on how social media platforms have accelerated individual grievances and dissolved tolerance? It's a good question. So my concern with looking at some of the data and survey data in particular about younger generations' understanding of free speech is that they weigh, they, it's not that they don't care about free speech, they do. And I think it's often it's often easy to say, oh, these younger generations, I mean, look, I'm 50, so I'm like, ah, oh, these kids these days, you know, and I have kids I'm raising myself, so like, they always tease me about this. It's not that the younger generations don't care about free speech, but they value equally or more getting along. They call that tolerance, but what it ends up in practice often becoming is fear of hearing things with which they might disagree or which might offend others. Now, in general, that's a nice thing, right? People are like, I don't want someone saying something that's going to hurt my friend's feelings. Why would we argue with that? Well, we argue with that because in a free society that values free speech, and we as in the United States are quite rare in this regard. Many other Western countries do not have this kind of free speech protection. We can say and do say things that offend. That's how debate gets started. It's not always the most um, useful way to do it. But if I say something with which you disagree and you have the right to push back and say, well, actually, I think this, and we can have an argument about it and a debate about it, that's healthy for democracy. The way that we're having those debates in, on social media platforms is not healthy. And that's because when I have to sit, we're sitting in this nice podcast studio at AEI right now, and I'm sitting here looking at you and we're talking and we're making eye contact. And if we disagreed, we'd still have this respect for each other as human beings because we're sitting in the same room together and we, we don't want to have a fist fight. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the my colleagues do at the podcast studio, <laughs> but like I just want all, all of us to get along. When the barrier to entry is simply opening up your computer screen and you can have anonymity and you can have a lot of reward given to you for being really mean and obnoxious in any sort of debate, then what you become is not someone who's debating. You become someone who is intolerant of other views and you become a moral grandstander. And by that, I mean someone who wants to pick fights and make everything Manichaean, black and white, good versus evil, when most of the things that we as Americans disagree on are kind of in a gray area, right? Mm -hmm. Most people are in this nice middle. The nice middle is really not represented on social media platforms today. It used to be, I would say. But now things, um, both because of the way the algorithm is designed to, to feed you more of what you've already seen, this is particularly true on platforms like TikTok, but also on Facebook, Instagram, sorry, Meta, whatever it's calling itself these days. Um, It's designed now to feed you more of the same and to really keep you at a level of uh, both in a a kind of bubble, but also at a level of anxiety, fear, and anger that keeps you coming back. Yeah. I want to shift our focus to mainstream media outlets. Uh, So journalists often adhere to a code of ethics that guide their professional conduct and responsibilities. Principles included in the journalistic code of ethics are designed to ensure accuracy, fairness, and integrity in reporting. What factors contribute to the absence of neutrality in media reporting, and how have these factors escalated over the years? Mm. So for my sins, I have to write a media criticism column every month for Commentary Magazine. I don't know how I ended up getting that. Like, I got the short straw. But luckily, I you know I have a lot of colleagues here like Chris Steyerwald and others who, who have been very helpful in guiding me on, on that. But what I have found to be the biggest change in the last, say, five to ten years, but particularly the last five years, is a new generation of journalists who think objectivity is impossible. 
Now, objectivity is impossible. Pure objectivity really is not possible if you're mm-hmm. if you're a reporter. You're going to bring a lot of stuff to the table when you're reporting. Knowing and being aware of your of your proclivities and your and your sort of prior convictions is useful. And then you try to be as objective as possible. You seek out sources on different sides of an argument. All of those things are good journalistic practice. But there's an argument being made now, and actually you can see it in print now with a lot of journalists, where it's not about pursuing truth, pursuing justice. It's my truth, often in the pursuit of social justice. And my truth is not uh, compatible with true journalism. Because if you have your own version of truth and you confront something, say a burning building that rioters have started the fire in, and you look at that and you're like, well, that doesn't comport with what I think is going on, you can't really report on that. And yet we have a lot of journalists doing that. We saw this a lot on issues of race and post-George Floyd with a lot of the civil unrest. We see it with crime reporting a lot, too. Um, These are very difficult issues to report on if you're a journalist. I have a lot of friends who do this kind of reporting. It's hard to do. It's hard to listen to victims and then turn around and give a fair shake to to their murderers. I mean, it is, but that's the job, right? Um, And not every journalist goes into a war zone, but a lot of the reporting they have to do is difficult. So I have a lot of sympathy for that. Once we start down the path of saying we have a narrative that we're pursuing and that narrative is within these realms and boundaries of social justice because we're not actually just journalists. We're, we're pursuing social justice. Well, then you become an activist and you cannot be a good journalist if you're an activist. You can be a great activist. You can be a good op- opinion writer, opinion journalist. I do a lot of opinion journalism, but I've also done reported journalism. They're very different things. So I my concern is that we're seeing a younger generation that really wants to merge those two while pursuing a kind of my truth argument that doesn't allow for critique and that doesn't allow for the pursuit of the ideal of objectivity, even if we never reach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a follow up to that, in all the president's pressmen and op-ed you published in September 2023, you analyzed how only a few mainstream media outlets picked up on Hunter Biden's foreign business activities. And those that did, such as The New York Times, was sparse and optimistic. Alternatively, you published an op-ed this recent November titled, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Atia? Denouncing Karen Atia, a global opinions editor at The Washington Post, for her bias and disinformation. Do you believe the problem of media bias lies within a media outlet as a whole or the opinions of specific editors? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, both, <laughs> depending on the outlet. So uh, with the Hunter, Bi- the Hunter Biden case is really interesting because that was not only that was an institutional structural issue in mainstream media, um, which is still hasn't been fully acknowledged and recognized because you had a situation where it, and again, this goes back to some of the questions you asked earlier about social media platforms, because right, you had the federal government, social media platforms, mainstream media outlets all saying we are going to call this Russian disinformation. We are going to make sure everybody thinks that the existence of this laptop is a is a plant. Russian disinformation meant to meant to uh, alter an election. Now, Russian disinformation is a real threat. It's a real problem. It actually happens. But there were plenty of people in each of those institutions that knew that wasn't true, and yet didn't publish it. And they didn't publish what they know. Now, some places didn't publish. Uh, stuff about the laptop until they verified it. They were actually doing due diligence. But there came a moment, and and it was pretty soon after some of the stuff was verified by other outlets like the New York Post, which was, as we all probably remember, its stories were censored by Facebook and Twitter and other platforms who claimed it was disinformation when it wasn't. So you did have verification, and other reporters should have followed up on that. 
uh, they had partisan reasons for not doing so. It's that plain and simple. And I think that's why you've seen the flourishing of alternative media outlets, not just purely conservative ones, but some in the mainstream middle, some old school liberal outlets like the Free Press started by Barry Weiss. So you see a lot of flourishing new smaller outlets challenging the mainstream media because a lot of journalists who care about the integrity of their work were kind of horrified to see that play out. On the Atia case, I think she is an example of um, an individual journalist who has decided she's going to be an activist through her journalism. She's pretty blatant about it. If you read her Twitter feed, it's kind of uh, astonishing. Now, she's an opinion journalist, but what she often passes off as fact in her opinion pieces is not true, and she gets corrected a lot. So in her case, I would say I'd give her a little more uh, leeway because she is expressly an opinion journalist. But as an institution, the Washington Post has a real problem if someone is promoting false information and they are not correcting it fully, which they aren't doing with her, and also spreading anti-Semitism. She is an anti-Semite. She has very blatantly been one for many, many years. And if you substituted the word African-Americans for Jews and what she posts on social media, she would have been fired a long time ago. So I think there's a real double standard there. I think there's a real uh, tolerance of in her intolerance that reflects badly on the Post as an institution, even though I would say as an opinion journalist, she gets a little more room to insert her own opinion in there. But her anti-Semitism is, is completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what is your biggest piece of advice for social media users who turn to these platforms to express their political opinions and read current events? And how can we gauge political bias and refrain from allowing social media to change our opinions? Well, first of all, don't get your news from social media. Mm-hmm. If you get a link, read the actual story. Mm-hmm. And then read broad, read other stories about the same thing. So if, you, if there's an issue you really care about, uh, read deeply. I'm, now I'm really going to reveal my old fogeydom. Um, read books. Because books have, in most cases, been a little more heavily vetted, and you're going to be able to go deeper into a subject. If you're just scanning headlines, that's great. But don't just read the whatever's posted on X or on Instagram. Don't look at an Instagram reel and think that's anything close to fact. It might spark you to then look around. But then go to go to mainstream media outlet sources, even though they're not all 100% perfect. But go to the Wall Street Journal. Go to the New York Times. Go to the Post. Go to the New York Post. Go, go Washington Post, New York Post. Read broadly. And then when it comes to something you really care about and you have strong opinions about, read deeply. Read the history of that issue. I I am often struck by how everyone's memory of current events only goes back about six months now. It used to be a year, but now it's about six months. And time seems to travel faster now for current events because we're inundated with this huge amount of information. So read deeper on the stuff you really care about. Don't get your information from TikTok in particular. In fact, take TikTok off your phone immediately. As you hear me say this, delete it because it is a Chinese spyware app and, you know, it's bad. But I think uh, self-discipline is only part of the problem because structurally these platforms, and particular what we found out in cases like Missouri v. Biden and others, uh, these, these companies are often also working with federal government agencies, and including the Department of Justice and others, to censor Americans. We need to be very aware that these platforms are not neutral. Everybody wants to believe technology is neutral. We just have our individual responsibility. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. That's a nice fiction, but it's no longer fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now for our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? <laughs> oh, boy. So many things I couldn't say on a podcast. But let me say this. <laughs> you'll never have you'll never have another opportunity to read as widely and broadly anything that catches your fancy. There's a lot more. And I so I had to I had jobs. I had to work my way through college I was on a scholarship and I had to have several jobs to pay pay the bills. 
And I still tried to find time to read, but I wasted a lot of time in college. Now, part of college is having fun with your friends and all that. I get it. But you will never, as an adult, have these like sort of day after day where you'll have a block of two hours where you could just read a book or kind of sit around with your friends in your department and talk about ideas. Those connections and those moments will be formative for you later on, particularly if you want to get into the world of politics or ideas. You will have you will regret not having used that time a little bit more productively. And I think idle time is great. We need more of that. So that interstitial time, those little moments, don't pick up your phone. Mm -hmm. Talk to the people who actually you'll look back on many, many. I graduated from college in 1993. I still have, I still remember conversations. I had an eclectic and weird group of friends in philosophy, history, and political science and I still remember some of the crazy conversations. I mean, it's a cliche, right? The late night college conversation, especially if you know philosophy majors, you know what I'm talking about. It goes off the rails quickly, but it's fun. It it forces you to really stretch your own um, intellectual muscle, really take advantage of that, and, and really read broadly and deeply outside of the field you're studying in. If something starts strikes your interest. Like I took a, a criminology class as a freshman. I wasn't going to be a criminologist. But I went to the professor. I was like, what should I read if I just find this interesting? He gave me a list and I worked my way through it over, over a year. It took years. Mm-hmm. Um, but that stuff has really helped me when I ended up writing about some criminal justice reform because I could call back to that. I remembered a lot of the theory and some of the cool books. And so read broadly, make good friends, talk about ideas, debate. Do not be afraid to really push back on your friend's ideas if you disagree with them. Yeah. And enjoy it. Enjoy that time, really. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Rosen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.